It's Today Explained. I'm Sean Ramosverum. And I'm Noelle King. Noelle, you and I have a favorite kind of question to answer on this show. Yes, democracy. We're both interested in democracy and how it's doing. Especially in these United States. And today you have once again left the District of Columbia to answer questions about how American democracy is doing. Where are you this time, Noelle? Is it Topeka? Is it Alaska? Is it Tahunga? None of the above. I'm in Budapest, Hungary. <laughs> Noelle, that's not even in the United States. It's all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. But the reason I'm here, Sean, is because there's a certain type of American conservative that is looking at Hungary, which used to be a democracy and now is not. There's lots of anti-democratic stuff going on here, and a lot of U.S. conservatives are interested in how Hungary did this. They think what's going on here is not such a bad thing. And so this week, they've flown to Hungary for a big conservative conference, and I am here too. We miss you. Aww. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hello to all of our friends in Hungary. This is Matt Among Schott, the high-profile conservatives going to the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, in Hungary, Matt Schlapp, chairman of the Conservative Political Action Conference. And we are so excited to come join you in your freedom-loving country with a lot of our friends and VIPs from America. Candace Owens, conservative activist, conspiracy theorist, friend of Kanye. Hey guys, it's Candace Owens. I'm so looking forward to speaking at CPAC Budapest. Ben Ferguson, the right-wing radio host who's been on air since he was 13 years old. And I can't wait to see you in Budapest. And Rick Santorum, best known for, well, maybe just Google him. I am very excited to be able to be there and speak at this event. I hope to see you there. But the real draw is Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban, a leader whose political career did not begin when Donald Trump endorsed him last year or even when he endorsed Donald Trump in 2016. His life in politics began many, many years ago. And Viktor Shebestyen has known Orban from the beginning. I am a former journalist for many, many years, but I now write history books, so I'm a historian. Why are certain types of American conservative so interested in Hungary right now, do you think? Because the guy who's presently in charge, Viktor Orban, is a winner. He expresses a kind of Christian nationalism uh, that has very powerful resonance, obviously, in America. He's succeeded in essentially taking over a country. Here's footage that we just shot in Budapest. There are not tent cities of drug addicts living in the parks here. There isn't garbage and human waste littering the sidewalks. People don't get beheaded at intersections. BLM is not allowed to torch entire neighborhoods in Budapest. They see that Hungary, small though it is, and cut off though it is, and in Europe though it is, has actually managed to do many of the things that the nationalist right in America 
is aiming to do. In a nutshell, I think that's the reason. That's how Americans used to live before our leaders decided they no longer cared about you. Victor, Hungary's recent history, you could argue, starts with the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. You were a baby. I know your family had to flee. What happened? Well, in the war, Hungary was occupied in the final battle against Hitler from the east. In October 1944, when the Red Army crossed into Hungary, the Hungarians welcomed them as liberators. But in Budapest, the fighting was at its fiercest. The Soviet Union captured most of Eastern Europe, including Hungary, and they kept it as a Soviet state. Socialized it, turned it completely communist, a one-party state. It was a communist state, no freedom, bogus elections. It was an adjunct to the Soviet Union. In 1951 and 52, thousands of people were deported to the mines, state farms or concentration camps. My mother's first husband was arrested, and we were terrified to be deported to the country. Fear drove many to suicide. In 1956, Hungary tried to rebel and pull out of the pact with the Soviet Union. In spite of their lack of training, the Hungarians did well against the Soviet tanks, drawing them into narrow streets and dropping Molotov cocktails into their petrol tanks to destroy them. For a short while, the Russians declared they were going to pull out, and indeed did pull out, but then a few days later returned with overwhelming force and completely demolished large parts of Hungary, destroyed the hopes of freedom for the Hungarians. This is Hungary falling, the last remaining station. We are requesting you to send us immediate aid for the sake of God and freedom. That was one of the defining moments in the Cold War. That was when it was clear that the Soviets at that point were not going to give up any of the domains that they had won in the Second World War. And it was equally clear, despite the rhetoric in large parts of the West, that they were going to um, roll back communism. They weren't really going to do very much to help any of the rebellions because it was too risky. There is a tradition of young people rising up against the Soviets. And then in the late 80s, the Soviet Union, as you say, begins to fall apart. And there is a young man in Hungary who begins to get a lot of attention. Can you tell me the first time Viktor Orban came to your attention? I was a journalist covering Russia and Eastern Europe in the mid-80s when the communist system was throughout Eastern Europe and indeed in the Soviet Union was falling apart. Orban at that point was a, a kind of radical chic figure. Radical chic. <laughs> was the go-to dissident. The moment one huh. landed as a reporter, one landed in Hungary, in Budapest, one of the first people you'd want to go to is to talk to, to Viktor Orban. He had really good English. He was incredibly smart, super smart. He had a Rolodex of everyone who was anyone in the dissident movement throughout Eastern Europe. He started this party, he and some university student chums, called Fidesz, which was the Association of Young Democrats, as a very liberal anti-communist organization, hmm. totally connected with Western Europe. And their aim was to get rid of communism and bring about a, you know, a, a, a democratic, very traditional West European liberal centrist government deeply connected with Europe. That was their idea. Orban used to say, 
His party was super cool centrist. He didn't want any members over 35. <laughs> Religion was never mentioned. That wasn't the kind of revolution he wanted to bring about then. It was the party of cool. Fides was the party of cool. He was always dressed in sort of jeans, white shirt, five-day stubble. One would ask him, well, what do you see? Let's say the communists go, Soviet Union goes, Russian troops are no longer there. What kind of country do you want? And he said, well, I want it to be a boring, normal European country, say Sweden or Austria or something. That was the kind of revolution the dissidents wanted in the late 80s. And Orban is young. He's hot. He's oriented toward Western Europe. And in June of 1989, as I understand it, he did something remarkable. What happened? In most of Eastern Europe, the great moment was the fall of the Berlin Wall. That was the symbol of the Soviet Empire falling apart and the hope to democracy rising again, being in the ascendance again. In Hungary... The great dramatic moment was this extraordinary reburial of Imre Nagy, who was the leader of the 1956 revolution. He and his group had been hanged and buried in the middle of nowhere. Outrage sweeps the non-communist world in reaction to the execution last week of Imre Nagy and three other leaders of Hungary's freedom fighters of 1956. But. In 1989, there was a big, big symbolic campaign to get them reburied, and it was a it was a huge occasion. June 16th, 300,000 people in Heroes Square, Budapest, to mourn the man who was prime minister during the dramatic days of 1956. It was a remarkable event because it wasn't totally clear that the Soviet system and the communist system had, had been dead. There was still some edginess. There was still some nerves. I'm watching the streets, I'm looking for red flags, red stars. I didn't see even no one. Big demonstrations, there'd never been such things in communist Hungary before, or not to that, anything like that extent. Something is going on, but it's not clear. The other thing you couldn't talk about in Hungary then, even though it was fairly liberal, the thing that you couldn't say in Hungary publicly then was Russians go home, Russian tanks get out of Hungary. There were some boring, a whole load of boring speeches by communist apparatchiks. And then Orban comes up in his jeans and white shirt and stubble. Makes this very short but brilliant speech about freedom and about the hopes for democracy. And the main point of it was, he's there to say the taboo thing that you couldn't say publicly in Russia. Russian troops get out of Hungary. There was this unbelievably massive cheer that sent goosebumps through, you know, most people I think who were there. It was an absolutely extraordinary moment. Very, very few Hungarians outside the small dissident circle knew who Viktor Orban was at that point. And then after that, everyone knew Viktor Orban. It was the moment that made him. Coming up, how that freedom fighter turned his back on democracy. It's Today Explained.
Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Big improvements can make your past behavior look absolutely wild, says Mint Mobile, targeting all of us personally. And Mint Mobile wants to do that with your phone bill. Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. And in retrospect, you might feel a little silly about how much you were paying before. Plus, according to Mint Mobile, all of their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's biggest 5G network. You can get this new customer offer and your three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month by going to mintmobile.com explained. That's mintmobile.com explained. You can cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. $45 upfront payment required. Do the math. That's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower, above 40 gigabytes on this unlimited plan. And additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for those details. It's Stay Explained. We're back with Victor Sebastien. Here's where we left off. This kid gets up, this 26-year-old, 27-year-old kid gets up. He makes a speech. He blows the country away. Everybody now knows his name. He has said the thing that no one has ever said. And then what happens? He goes into politics, which I guess is what everybody would have expected from a young man like this. Tell me about his early political career. Well, he leads this party, Fidesz, that through parliamentary elections, He leads them as he has done up till now. He's always been in politics. He's never had any other work, never had any other job. So he is in opposition for the first eight years of democratic Hungary. And then he wins an election in the late 90s. It's a kind of centre-right government. It It is a very traditional, very moderate conservative government. This young man who was super cool, wanted democracy, was looking to Europe. He is elected prime minister, and then he just becomes kind of a stodgy Hungarian politician? Essentially, yeah. Who was his constituency? Was it the young people in the jeans and the sneakers who voted him into office? Who who liked this guy? By then, he was starting to appeal to much more well, traditional conservatives in Budapest, but mostly people outside Budapest. But of course, that's what he was trying to get at. But he didn't fire anyone up. He was too cautious. That's what he said. And the economic problems were enormous. Ah, so the fiery opposition leader now has to deal with actual governing. And his party, Fidesz, is voted out in 2002. What happens to him next? They lose power for two terms, so eight years. He uses that period to completely transform. That's when the transformation of Fidesz happens. He saw the coming tide was going to be what's called populism now, what's called, you know, nationalism, ultra-nationalism, much further to the right, much more rigorously conservative. The use of Christian um, rhetoric. He'd never used any Catholic rhetoric before. He'd never gone down that road. This is when he starts anti-immigrant rhetoric. Orban was elected prime minister again in 2010. He's been in power ever since. If I'd been in Budapest over the last 12 years or so, what would I have heard Orban say that would have surprised me if I knew him in the 80s? Oh, it's the fault of the global elite. (laughs) 
that. It's the fault of the city dwellers. It's the fault of all the pro-Europeans. It's the same rhetoric as you're hearing almost everywhere as regards the, after the financial disaster of 2008. Although in Hungary, as always, it's foreigners that's to blame. The race is on to get Hungary's border fence ready by the end of the month. It's being built by prison inmates and put in place by soldiers and the unemployed. He's not anti-Semitic, but there are plenty of people around him who are. A lot of the rhetoric is very unpleasant anti-Semitic rhetoric. The face of billionaire philanthropist and native Hungarian George Soros is the centerpiece of Orbán's re-election campaign. And though Orbán denies it, Jewish groups see another appeal to history in the vilification of Soros. This is really the cliché that, uh, that Jews are secretly working to undermine uh, the European uh, white and uh, Christian race. think that Orban authentically became more conservative and more nationalist over time? Or was this entirely pragmatic? Was this entirely about staying in power? In my view, it's all completely calculated and pragmatic. Wow. I don't believe he's really got an ideological bone in his body. He probably didn't believe all the liberal stuff he was talking in the 80s. He doesn't believe in anything that isn't a benefit to him. He is the ultimate opportunist. It is a big accusation that you're making. And because you're a journalist and historian, I want to ask you if you would defend the point. Why do you believe this about Viktor Orban? What makes you think that this man is the ultimate opportunist? Many people say those things that he would say privately are totally, completely different than those things that he would say in public. The other thing you really need to know about Orban is the level of corruption of the government that he has led. He has never had a real job. He's never had a business. None of his family have really had much businesses, yet somehow they're billionaires. Well, how does that happen? Orban's best friend, a gas fitter called Lorenk Mezerosh, quickly became the richest man in Hungary, leading to accusations of nepotism and economic corruption. The Prime Minister's son-in-law, Istvan Tibortz, also saw his wealth rapidly increase. He's used public money to make his friends extremely rich. He's used the EU's money to make his friends extremely rich. They have massive contracts with EU companies and all those contracts go to his friends. They have grown wealthy on massive EU handouts. That's how he's corrupted the state. You're saying this is about money. This is about getting rich. This is not about an actual philosophy of governance. So how does Viktor Orban start to consolidate power and then continue down that road to where he is today? What he won in 2010 was a two-thirds majority in Parliament, which basically allowed him to change the Constitution. Oh. And what he did was he created committees that appointed the judiciary. It's the party that appoints the judiciary. There is a general climate of fear that they can do anything to us judges. In certain types of cases, maybe one involving a foreign currency loan, or refugees, or referring to a politician from any of the parties, the judge may think he or she is expected to rule in a certain way. He created a council that had ultimate control over 
the press, radio, television, the, the internet to, in a way that's unknown almost anywhere else in Europe. An International Press Institute report describes state media as uncritically echoing the messaging of the government. While the government's accused of distributing its massive advertising budget to finance private media outlets that support it and starve those that don't. So he used his original two-thirds majority in order to obtain these commissions, which gave him ultimate control over the state in a way that is unusual in a democracy. And he gerrymandered the, the voting districts. That happens in other countries too, but it's done in a much, much more systematic way in Hungary. Four years ago, not this election, he got a two-thirds majority of 65% of the seats on the 39% of the vote. It's a very similar country now than it was in the last few years of communism. Only the one-party state is Fidesz. Do you think Hungary still is a democracy? No longer entirely a democracy. Even though Viktor Orban managed to pull all of this off within the confines of the law. Like, he didn't do anything illegal. I, I'm not saying he's a fascist authoritarian. He isn't. But he's certainly not a democrat either. That's an interesting argument. All kinds of things are in one's country in, within the law. It doesn't necessarily make it either democratic or make it, make it right. I mean, it's within the law, but I've been trying to explain how the laws are made. And the laws are not made in a democratic way. Right. I'm saying he did it within the law. And you're saying, yeah, but he made all the laws. He appointed every single judge and the judges make the laws. And he made the constituencies in which the parliament in which he's ruling by is elected. And that isn't entirely democratic. There was this old saying, you know, the voting is democratic, the counting isn't. Huh. There are other things that are happening that makes it essentially a one-party state. Voting is only one part of democracy. You need a free press, you need a free judiciary, you need separation of powers, all these things that don't apply in Hungary. I think the thing that continues to astonish me is Viktor Orban is not Alexander Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus. He's not throwing people in prison. He's not killing his opponents in the streets. He's not poisoning people. Uh, he's not. And there is an opposition allowed. There are no people being um, sent to the salt mines. No. It, it feels like he's making a very specific point, doesn't it? You don't need to send people to the salt mines in order to keep power. That seems to, to me what makes him so special. He's actually looked at the last years of communism and he runs it kind of similar. The last political prisoner in Hungary under the communists was in 1974, a guy called Miklos Harasti. How totalitarian, and I don't regard Hungary as totalitarian, to take that word away, but authoritarian. How things work in Hungary is that you don't get on if you're not a part of the ruling party. That's how it works. This is, in a way, the same kind of way that the communist Hungary worked. You're in or you're out. You can, you're allowed this or you're not allowed this. And it damages families. It damages the fabric of a society. It becomes totally impossible to run a proper democratic society if you're an opposition person, but your family are scared that you might do the wrong thing to jeopardize their position. It's a very subtle, very clever process. It doesn't require prisons. It doesn't require salt mines. It, it requires a system of being, of being on the outside of everything. You'll never get into the right side if you're not a member of the ruling party. And so I will end, Victor, by asking you the question I asked you at the beginning. 
Why is the American right so captivated by Hungary and by Viktor Orban? Orban's a winner. They think that he offers the formula for winning electorally, and then when you win electorally, maintaining your power electorally. A winner with no salt mines, a winner with no secret police, just a guy who wins and gets away with winning. Yeah. Yeah. The state has been stolen and corrupted. It could be so much better. Tomorrow on the show, we will be reporting from Budapest. We will be talking to Hungarians, those who like Viktor Orban, those who do not. And we will be asking them how they feel about their country moving from democracy to something very different. Today's show was produced by Miles Bryan. It was edited by Jolie Myers and Matthew Collette. It was engineered by Afim Shapiro. And it was fact-checked by Tori Dominguez. I'm Noel King. It's Today Explained.